Our Father, as we come again to the book of Genesis, we're so grateful that you have given us this instruction concerning the beginnings. We realize that in no other literature or writing is there anything as extensive as we have here. And we're so grateful, Lord, that you have chosen to give us the whole picture from the beginning to the end. And even though, uh, as Paul, as, as, the, as, it, as we read in the uh, epistles, we yet see through the glass darkly, we know, Lord, that one day we will see face to face and we will understand these things in far greater focus than we do now. But we're thankful for all the light which has been cast upon these passages down through the centuries. And we pray that you'll guide our study here this morning. We realize, Lord, that it is the Spirit of God who illumines our hearts and minds. And so we depend upon him this morning. And we ask, Father, that you will meet each of our needs and uh, straighten our hearts where they have been bent during this past week. And give us, Lord, renewed commitment for the week before us. In Christ's name, amen. I'd like to read the first nine verses of the 11th chapter of Genesis. Genesis chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower, whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to, the, to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. And therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. I think it's pretty certain that the language that was given to Adam and Eve by God was perpetuated down through the centuries before the flood. Now whether dialectical differences had already began to develop or not, we, we can't know at this point in time. But certainly wherever people lived before the flood, they were still capable of communicating with one another in basically the same language. Obviously, since the eight people who were on the ark, Noah and his three sons and his wife and their three wives, those eight people spoke this common language, the language which had been given to mankind before the flood. And so obviously, as they got off the boat and began to reproduce and repopulate the land, that was the language which they spoke. And so Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and the Shemites, and the Hamites, and the Japhethites all spoke the same language. And that's what it says here. And it's logical when you think about it for a minute. The whole earth 
use the same language it says. Wouldn't that be wonderful? I don't know, it would do away with Wycliffe, wouldn't it? <laughs> wouldn't need Wycliffe. That would be too bad. They're a, they're a wonderful society. But uh, it would be nice to be able to go anywhere in the world and uh, speak the language to the people. I don't know how many of you have traveled abroad, and it becomes really frustrating when you travel from one country to the next. You go from Italy into Aust Austria, and you go from Austria into France, and, and you know, the languages are different, and uh, if you're not, if you don't have facility in those languages, it's a little bit frustrating. I think I mentioned to you, or mentioned to somebody once before, as we were trying to find a particular uh, hotel in Geneva, Switzerland, and the maps just didn't seem to, co to coincide with the city for some reason. I'm sure they did, but I just didn't get it figured out. So in frustration, I stopped at a bus stop and I got out. <laughs> I said to all these people, does anybody here speak English? <clears throat> they all looked at me as if I'd come from outer space, you know. <laughs> Nobody moved or said a word, so I got back in the car and finally some guy came running over to the window and spoke in relatively little English, mostly French, which I knew very little of, and uh, basically I learned that he didn't know either, so <laughs> that didn't help a whole lot. But uh, it, it, it just would be a, a blessing, of course, I would think, to be able to do that. The uh, common language, of course, was maintained by the fact that Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their families lived in close proximity to one another, we assume, and, and the passage, I think, seems to lend to that. And as a result, there was this constant uh, intermingling, socially probably, and uh, the language was maintained. Now, the implication in verse 2, it says, and, they came, and it came about they journeyed to the east. The implication is that the whole clan that all of the descendants of Noah migrated to the east. They sort of moved as a group. It, that's what the implication is, I think, as you look at this passage. And we're told that they found a plain which was called China. Now, I don't know if you still happen to have the map that we used last week, but maybe you can visualize it in your mind. Uh, Ararat is up in eastern Turkey. Now, whether the Ararat, as we've already talked about, whether the Ararat of today was the Ararat of then, we can't prove one way or the other, but there seems to be strong leaning to that being so. But let's say somewhere up in that country. They had migrated southward, apparently, probably into upper Mesopotamia, and now they were migrating east, it says, probably southeast. I really doubt that they had migrated all the way down to Palestine and were migrating straight across the, the Syrian desert. They probably were coming down the Euphrates River uh, towards the junction with the Tigris. And so they were migrating to the southeast. And they were migrating into what the uh, ancients called the Plain of Shinar, which we know as Babylonia, uh, Lower Mesopotamia, Sumer, uh, many different names applied to that particular area politically. Shiner seems to have been sort of a, a physical name for the area. There doesn't seem to be any people or country called Shiner. Seems to be a geographical uh, term for the plain of Sumer Babylonia. 
Eventually, uh, it seems that as they settled there, they discovered the value of uh, building the irrigation systems. I mentioned before that the Tigris flows at a slightly higher elevation than the Euphrates. And so it's possible to build canals and, bring, and, and for the canals to flow more or less southward from the Tigris Valley into the Euphrates portion of the valley. And in the process, to feed the many different uh, canals that would have been built and the whole system of irrigation that would have been established. And, and I believe these ancients could do that. Again, we don't know how far science had traveled before the flood. There are some who feel that science was highly advanced before the flood, particularly if we have uh, demonic influence on, on the planet uh, with their higher intelligence influencing mankind's technology, whatever is the case. Certainly after the flood, uh, they quickly knew how to uh, develop irrigation systems, and that particular region of the world lends itself to irrigation. And so the rich alluvial soils were soon watered and able to produce abundantly. Now I've mentioned before that one of the keys to the development of a civilization is agricultural surplus. Every man doesn't have to go out and just try to scratch a living out of the soil to feed his own family. He's able to produce enough so that there's something to market. And as he markets it, someone else produces another product that, with which he can buy the grain, and that product is useful. And as you look at this, you end up with a society which is able to focus on technology and, and to develop other types of trade and activity. And, and you have people freed to uh, pursue the things of the mind and not be tied to the soil. Now, it's very difficult for us to, to spe specify a time frame for the Tower of Babel incident. We know it occurred after the flood. It occurred before Abraham. But that's a very long period of time in there. Uh, exactly when it occurred, we cannot know. But we, from looking at this passage and the previous chapter, we might know approximately when it happened. For example, if we consider it to have happened in the days of Peleg, Let's, let's go back for a minute. Last week we looked at Genesis 10:25, And two sons were born to Eber. The name of the one was Peleg. For in his days the earth was divided. Now we talked a little bit about what that could mean last week. And uh, I'm convinced at least that the most likely uh, explanation for those words was that it's referring to the day in which the confusion of tongues came and the Tribes were scattered across the earth, and uh, the international divisions developed as we know them. Not as we know them, but as we eventually would know them. If that's true, then of course we've got Peleg as, as kind of a marker here. And we can kind of maybe guess as to how many years that would have been after the flood that would have been the days of Peleg. And we can go by the chronology which is given here in the book of Genesis. For if you look in the latter part of the 11th chapter, which we'll be looking at next Sunday, uh, it gives the names of the various patriarchs that were born and how many years it was before the next one was born. Now, if we take that literally and tie them together, uh, we can discover that Peleg probably was born somewhere within a century, two or three centuries after the flood. And if the division occurred in the days of Peleg, sometime in his lifetime, then it could be that the Tower of Babel incident can be dated two, three hundred years after the flood, possibly more. 
There are those who feel that the Genesis chronologies should not be taken like you add them together and come up with a short frame, but they were just talking about key persons along the way, and that in between were others that were talking about a far greater period of time. There are problems with looking at it either way. Uh, but nevertheless, what we're talking about probably didn't take very many years after the flood because onto the ark was carried the fallen human race. Noah was righteous in the eyes of God, but that didn't make him sinless, as we well know. And his three sons and his wife and their wives were certainly carriers of the infection of sin, too. And so very quickly, sin, sin began to propagate again broadly in the human race after the flood, and that seems to be the picture we read in, about in this 11th chapter. Now, longevity still existed. They would not live to the great lengths of time that they lived before the flood, after the flood, but they still would live a long time. Noah would live 350 years after the flood. Shem would live 500 years after the flood. That's half a millennium which would mean, of course, that Shem would have lived through the Tower of Babel incident if those time ideas are anywhere near accurate. So, what I think this means is that it's easy to take, as we talked about when we looked at the 10th chapter, the Nimrod episode of the 10th chapter and plug Nimrod into this time frame. It could be very true that Nimrod is the spark plug behind this whole incident as we read it here. Certainly the mindset of Nimrod, if not the individual himself. This seems to be the understanding of Josephus. And let me again read another passage from Josephus relative to this very thing. He says, Now the multitude were very ready to follow the determination of Nimrod, and to esteem it a piece of cowardice to submit to God. And they built a tower, neither sparing any pain, nor being in any degree negligent about the work. And by reason of the multitude of hands employed in it, it grew very high sooner than anyone could expect. But the thickness was so great, and it was so strongly built, that its great height seemed, upon the view, to be less than it really was. And it was built of burnt brick, cemented together with mortar made of bitumen, that it might not be liable to admit water. When God saw that they acted so madly, he did not resolve to destroy them utterly, since they were not grown wiser by the destruction of the former sinners. But he caused a tumult among them by producing in them diverse languages, and causing that through the multitude of those languages they should not be able to understand one another. The place wherein they built the tower is now called Babylon. Because of the confusion of the language which they readily understood before, for the Hebrews mean by the word Babel, confusion. Now in the land of Mesopotamia, as we know it today, that is Iraq, there is not, particularly in the lower portion of it, much in the way of either stone or wood. And therefore, the people of that area learned how to make building material from clay. They took the clay and they molded it into bricks and they fired the bricks and they had these hard, uh, fire-hardened bricks with which to build these structures. 
And if you go over to the archaeological digs or read about them or see photographs about the archaeological digs of Sumer and Babylon and Assyria and so forth, you'll find that in many cases this was obviously true. Many of the ancient cities were made of fired clay bricks. And the great walls even of ancient Babylon, at least in part, were so. And so they used what was at hand. And they began to construct a city. They began to construct a tower. They mortared the bricks with bitumen, tar. As we well know, the, the Near East is full of petroleum seeps. I mean, we just went through this whole deal with Kuwait being a fire uh, for the many oil wells that were blown up by Saddam Hussein. And those areas had seeped oil from, who knows, the beginning of time possibly, or at least since the flood. And that tar was sticky and something that they found to be useful. And so they used it to mortar these fired clay bricks and to construct the city and the tower. Now it's very possible that Nimrod had by this time already gained a central position, that he is behind the construction of this city and the construction of this tower. Now we had read earlier and studied in the ninth chapter of Genesis that we're told that God said to Noah and to his family when they left the ark to be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth, scatter abroad, fill up the earth. If the people were to obey God in this and spread widely over the planet, it would be very difficult for a central government to be established. Now today we don't find that to be a problem because of computers and international communication and the whole idea that some have talked about of, of even imprinting on various individuals you know, electronic reading uh, numbers and so forth so that you could keep track of people. But in those days, obviously, there was no way to do that. And so if people spread way beyond the borders of what was the then known world, then the, you couldn't control them. And so the idea was to maintain control, to build a great human empire, and to keep people within reach, and therefore not let them scatter over the planet as they had been ordered to do. In verse 4, thus we're reading about an attempt to build a one-world empire. <laughs> Ever heard of that? Yeah, they talk about that today a lot, don't they? Many of the prophets, those who want to interpret prophecy do anyway. Charles Spurgeon, in his devotional Bible, said this, they would found a universal monarchy of which this tower would be the center. They planned the tower that they might not be scattered, and they thus forgot the command to replenish the earth. Ambition was at the bottom of the plan. By centralizing all mankind, they hoped to build an empire which, like their tower, should defy heaven itself. Thus, in Babel, they were endeavoring to build a tower unto heaven. And many commentators and translators have said, more accurately it might be read, a tower that would be heaven. In other words, on the top of this tower, they would have their heaven. They would build their temple to their deities, and that would be their heaven. It seems most likely that this was the first example of what became rather widespread in Mesopotamia, what were known as ziggurats. These, these temple towers that were built, 
not terribly unlike those that you have seen pictures of or possibly visited if you've been down in Central America, except not made of stone and uh, not near so steep, uh, but made out of fired bricks, sort of like a wedding cake in terms of layers, although not necessarily round, possibly square, rectangular in some way. And these towers, the base of some of which still exist in Mesopotamia today, in fact, one of them is called the Tower of Babel. We have no idea if, if that really was the Tower of Babel, but uh, there are these remnants of ziggurats left over there today. Now, they have not lasted as the pyramids have lasted, although some ziggurats probably are as old or older than the pyramids because they were made of clay. And, and through the heat and the cold, the heat and the cold, the constant expansion, contraction has caused the bricks to crack, the water to get in, and they have disintegrated and decayed. Whereas the great stones, of course, the pyramids have survived. Limestone and granite have uh, survived well. Limestone in a, in a dry climate is as tough as anything you can think of. Whereas the granite core, of course, uh, would help sustain it. But not so these ziggurats. Now, the ziggurats rose two, three, four, five, uh, and if you can believe Herodotus, 600 feet into the air. That's as high as a 60-story building. Of course, not like this at all, but, you know, like so. And, and on the top of these, they would build their temples to the god of their particular society or the gods. Now, According to Herodotus, the great tower that was in Babylon, the great ziggurat that was in Babylon, could be seen from many, many miles away. As you were coming across the plain, because the Babylonian plain is, is flat, just like our Central Valley down here, just flat. And uh, as you come, as soon as the curvature of the earth will allow you, you begin to see this ziggurat sticking up in the air. And as you go towards the city, you've got that as your guide, and you can move towards the city, and this great ziggurat uh, rises up over the in the air and long before you can see the walls of the city you see this tower and so you can imagine how impressive it would have been to the people living out in this mountainless plain to have this artificial mountain built up there uh, later on Nebuchadnezzar would build what are known as the hanging gardens of Babylon one of the seven wonders of the ancient world which was sort of like a ziggurat numerous levels which he built and he brought water up there and he, he watered sort of like terraces and he produced uh, gardens up there because one of his wives came from the mountains and she didn't like the desert and so he made this artificial mountain for her and you can imagine how impressive this would be to the people of that particular society. They would be constantly reminded as they walked out of their house, this great ziggurat rose over their city, of the greatness of their society. Look, we could build this wonderful thing. And the gods who have inspired us must be great gods to build such a marvelous structure as this. I mean, it really doesn't take much of a stretch of imagination to understand how people could be drawn into this and be so convinced that they would not turn their minds in other directions. In the fourth verse, we read of the reasons why this tower was built. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower, whose top will reach into heaven. Let us make for ourselves a name, 
lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now, Matthew Henry, as he describes this uh, particular thing, summarizes or outlines these three reasons as follows. He says, It seemed designed as a, an affront to God himself. In other words, it was purposely built to defy the Almighty. For they would build a tower whose top might reach to heaven, which bespeaks a defiance of God, or at least a rivalship with him. Secondly, they hoped hereby to make themselves a name and to give posterity to know that there had been such men as they in the world. They would leave this monument of their pride, ambition, and folly. Yet, we do not find in history the name of so much as one of these Babel builders. Unless, of course, Nimrod is the inspiration behind it. <laughs> you think about that for a moment. I mean, why did they build the great pyramids in Egypt? As tombs and as monuments to those pharaohs who died. How great that pharaoh must have been to raise up this great monument. I suppose if you're thoroughly imbued with paganistic thought, with the idea of reincarnation and some of these things, that that might be a thrilling thought. But to me, it's a totally meaningless thought. You know, I, I really don't care if there's a monument to remind people of me after I'm gone. I mean, after I'm gone, who gives a rip, you know? But yeah, I suppose, you know, particularly to the ancient Egyptians who thought there was some sort of immortality in being in the minds of people. I suppose there's some argument along that line. A philosophical argument can be made. As I think of George Washington, am I perpetuating him in some way? Well, not to his self-consciousness, that's for sure. Thirdly, they did it to prevent their dispersion. It is probable that the hand of ambitious Nimrod was in all this. He aimed at universal monarchy. Under pretense of uniting for their common safety, he contrives to keep them in one body, that having them all under his eye, he might not fail to have them under his power. It is God's prerogative to be universal monarch, Lord of Lord and King of Kings. The man that aims at it offers to step into the throne of God who will not give his glory to another. So says Matthew Henry. And I think it's very clear just from reading that verse that these, as he outlined them, there are the three reasons. They chose to defy God, to shake their fist at the Almighty. They chose to make a name for themselves in its place. And then, of course, to avoid being dispersed and thus preventing the world empire from developing. So what we have here are the universal deriving forces that have afflicted mankind, it seems, from the fall of Eden to this very day. Behind the construction of this great tower and of this city was pride. And that pride fed human ambition. And that human ambition ultimately flowered into defiance of the Almighty himself. Stop and think about it. I mean, we need to do that, I think. Is this not the route that we discover Satan took himself? As you read about him in, in, in Isaiah and you read about him in, in Ezekiel and other places, I mean, this is the route he took. Pride came first, 
then ambition to be like the Most High, and then, of course, defiance of God. And this led to his downfall. It's clear, I believe, that Satan was the instigator of all that we read about here in that fourth verse. It was the enemy who empowered and drove people to want to build such a tower. Now, it's very possible, as I read earlier in Josephus on a previous Sunday, that uh, Nimrod actually also wanted to be sure that he had a tower tall enough so that if God did send another flood, they'd be safe. Ridiculous idea when you think about it. I mean, how, what's a 600-foot tower going to do for you if God drowned the mountains? Well, people will believe anything sometimes if they want to. God, ha uh, that is, Satan had convinced Nimrod, if Nimrod is actually behind this whole scene, and, and there's reason to think that's possible, and all of his psychophants, that there were many gods who deserved to be worshipped. Yahweh wasn't necessarily totally discarded. He simply became one amongst many to be worshipped. And it's very probable that it is at this time, if not before the flood, that personalities were given to the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, that the whole idea of, of the constellations and what they supposedly stood for and the signs of the zodiac, that all of this came into existence back then in that God-defiant world. Now, as I say, it may have been developed before the flood and carried through. Who knows? But certainly by this time, and there was this desire to water down the Almighty and to create a pantheon of gods that could be worshipped. The sun is a god, the moon is a goddess, and the various plant planets are gods and goddesses, and the signs of the zodiac have you know, some kind of pagan meaning at that particular time. The hosts of the heaven were deified. And so was much of human existence. And these gods were given personalities. And if you could trace those personalities to their roots, you'll find those personalities were demonic. When you study the evolution of Baal, the famous Baal of later Hebrew history, you discover that he evolves through a whole series of fertility storm war gods. And, and although at first they seem to be very benign and very desiring to help human government and help mankind to, to become, uh, you know, humanity, uh, humanitarian, and yet when you come to the root of it, the demand is demonic for ultimate worship of these demon gods. Let me uh, refer back to Romans 1 again. I, I feel that it's so fitting here in the midst of this incident to remind ourselves of what Paul said about how pagan practice really came into existence. Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men 
who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It's very, very important for us to focus on that verse. To know that the truth has been suppressed. Suppressed in unrighteousness. We live in, the wor in a world where the truth is suppressed. And it's just so frustrating, isn't it? If you've tried to reason with anybody today who, who goes around in the name of, hum of humanity and of humanitarian things and, and argues why, let's just take one factor, why abortion is right and yet the saving of a baby giraffe is, is also right. And, and, and you, you try to argue with these people and reason with them and you can't because you see the truth has been suppressed and they can't see it. They can't see it for anything. They can't see how, it, it's like I was reading a bumper sticker the other day. What was that bumper sticker? It said something about pro-choice is pro-woman. I thought, and it was a woman driving the car, and I thought, you know, does this person really know that who is being primarily aborted? Women. Huh. More girl babies are aborted than males. In fact, as we know, the, the, the tendency is to go into sex selection with this whole thing, and of course, what do they abort? Well, the tendency worldwide is to abort females. So I don't see how pro-choice is at all pro-woman. It's pro-idiocy is what it is. But you know, you can't argue with this kind of a person because the truth has been suppressed, they can't see it. They won't see it. It's like arguing with the demon himself. <laughs> Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew about God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And if there ever was a time when that's true, it's as true today as it's ever been. People who profess to be wise, who are absolute fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over to, in, in lust, in the lust of their hearts to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Can we see how this happens? I mean, it just comes so naturally, this evolution from the worship of the true and the living God to the first question as to, well, you know, does he really care for us? I mean, have you or I ever had that question? Does God really care about me in this situation because things are going from bad to worse? You know, you, like the little phrase, you know, cheer up, everything's going to be awful. And it turns out to be that way. And, you know, we wonder, where is God in all of this? And you can understand how quickly it would be for somebody to interject something else. The question as to whether God is real and whether God cares. And one step leads to the other, and pretty soon you've got a full-blown pantheism going on. And, of course, those who are polytheistic think that they're somewhat refined more than the pantheists are, which is ludicrous, but that's their idea. 
And, and it's, it's easy to see how it would happen. And, and that, of course, is what Paul is describing for us here in the first chapter of Romans. Now, it, we must believe that a few, probably of the line of Shem, undoubtedly resisted this corruption of true worship. But they were overruled, and they were probably even suppressed and oppressed by the Nimrodian government of that particular time. But they survived. How in the world did they survive? They survived the same way that true believers have survived under authoritarian regimes, anti-God regimes, as it has existed in China and Russia and other places. They survive because no matter how great is the power of human government, God's power is greater. The Almighty can preserve whom he chooses to preserve. And so this is a testimony to God's greatness and God's love, that through all of this corruption and decay of mankind, and although this great flood had just simply wiped out the human race and everybody ought to have thought, oh, my goodness, we better obey God because look at what he has done. And within two or three hundred years, they'd basically forgotten uh, God himself and were worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And so it would be that God in his patience would allow it to happen. But there would be a day when God would blow the whistle. But in it all, he preserved a line. He preserved a remnant. Now, from the first chapter of Genesis to the final chapter of the book of Revelation, this is one of the themes of Scripture. God always has for himself a remnant. It may be very few at any particular time. In the days of Noah, it was eight. That percentage-wise is probably the smallest it's ever been. But even today, God is preserving for himself a remnant. Now, we may think, oh, but we live in Christian America, and this great country with all of its believers certainly is more than a remnant. I don't think so. We live, I think, in a day of great apostasy. And we're we live in a day when there are more false prophets out there than maybe ever before, in our society at least. And they're teaching all kinds of things that are just, it seems, like a shade off of the truth. But you discover when you dig in that the shade is pretty broad. And down at the root is a total disbelief of the reality of the God of Scripture. And of course, it generally starts with disbelief of this book. Not believing that every word in here was given by God and preserved by God so that we today, as we read it, are not misguided. And we don't have to have a Ph.D. in theology to try to figure out what Paul's saying, or Jesus is saying. That even the poor, simple person who reads this book can receive the truth of God and can believe it. And it seems to be in the simple societies of today where uh, primitive peoples are accepting the word about Jesus Christ and because they don't know any better, believing it implicitly that God is working great miracles. But in our sophisticated society, when we can say, well, but God couldn't really have meant that. I mean, after all, look at how wonderful many of these, quote, gay people really are. So he can't really mean that homosexuality is evil, just flat out evil. Because, I mean, there are preachers who are like that. And, and, and they do such wonderful things. They're not all madmen. You know, it just takes a little crack, just a little crack. And it's really hard for us as believers to find the line where we walk in the truth 
without being, you know, some kind of fanatical bigots. We're always going to be perceived as that, of course, as Jesus was perceived and Paul was perceived and the prophets were perceived, but not to really be in that sense of the word anyway. Now, the question is, how long was the city and tower under construction? The answer is, we don't know. <laughs> it's not always exciting. <clears throat> but it probably took decades. I mean, we have at least something as a measuring rod. According to Herodotus, it took 20 years with force, a labor force that swelled to as much as 100,000 men to build the Great Pyramid of Cheops. 20 years with a force of at least 5,000 men working year-round, and then when it was not planting time or harvest time, a force of 100,000 men up there working, building that Great Pyramid. Now, it's only 480 feet high. So, probably we're talking about decades here that were necessary for the construction of this tower and for the construction of the city. What was God doing? God knew long before they ever even moved to Shinar what they would do. So what was God doing? Was God up there doing something else? I mean, he was busy with Venus or Alpha Centauri and wasn't paying much attention to what was going on in the planet. He comes back, oh, look what they've done while I've been gone. You know. Some people almost have that kind of view of God, like he doesn't know what's happening. We have to inform him. And sometimes we pray prayers that are really, if you think about it, pretty funny because God already knows all those details we insist on telling him about what's going on. But God is doing what? God is being very, very patient and merciful. He still loves these people down here who are building this tower and this city in defiance of him. Look how long it took him before he sent the great flood. Look how long he gave the Amorites. He gave them four more centuries to turn before he sent Israel in to destroy them. God is patient. Long-suffering is one of the key words of the Old Testament relative to God. During this time, he was seeking, of course, to draw men and women to the truth. However, all but a few chose to turn a deaf ear and to rebel against the Creator and to worship the creation. Now, for us who know the truth, that seems so Stupid. To worship a, a lizard, let's say, instead of the God who made it all. And yet people even worship bugs. You know, the scarab of ancient Egypt was, was an important bug. We like to use the word scarab. Actually, it was a dung beetle. And you think about it, you think, oh, gross. Uh, but that's what happens when the human mind is completely committed to evil, it's blocked. And the light of the gospel does not penetrate through. But ultimately, God will blow the whistle. God will, as he did in the days of Noah, say that my spirit will not always strive with the hearts of men. And so in this passage, we read, it says, God came down. 
Now that is, again, an anthropomorphism. God didn't come down some stairs from heaven, from his ivory tower, and kind of check out earth, see what's going on since the last time he looked. No, that's not what it means here at all. It's, of course, saying that God, when it says God came down, <laughs> it means God has now drawn the line and is ready to bring judgment. He checked out the city, we could say from a human point of view in the tower, and said enough is enough. It's kind of tragic humor here. Think about it for a minute. Here is God, almighty God, creator of heaven and earth, through all of the stars and planets into space, maintains them. And on this little dust speck over here in the corner, you get some kind of super power t powerful telescope and you see these little tiny creatures. Two legs, two arms. And they're trying to build this little pile of dirt so they can shake their fist at the one who made it all. Talk about stupid. It's like trying to stop a hurricane by spitting in the wind. It's illogical. We're supposed to be homo sapiens, sapien, thinking, thinking man. <laughs> thinking about what? Certainly not thinking about the truth. Certainly not even thinking logically. We're supposed to be logical people, but we tend to be very illogical most of the time. We're, we're driven by our emotions and by our, our feelings rather than by our brain most of the time. And of course, our brain needs to be captive to a heart committed to Christ to keep us on the right track. It's tragic. God didn't leave heaven to see what was going on. But as, I, but as we read in the fourth verse of the sixth chapter, God was simply saying in another way that my spirit has now ceased to strive and I'm going to Intervene. This is the point at which judgment will begin. Now, God knew before he ever created the world that at this time, these people would rebel against him. I think it's always important for us to remember that God is omniscient. We sometimes act as if that's not so. And to realize that God knew it would happen before it ever happened, and yet he allowed it to happen, that's his grace and his mercy because otherwise you and I wouldn't be here today. But he has chosen to allow this to happen for purposes that are part of his great plan, that you and I might sit here this day and rejoice in the knowledge of our Creator. In that way, the Tower of Babel is related to us. In that same long-suffering mercy has continued from then until now. And if we aren't building a Tower of Babel today, I don't know what it is we're doing in our society and, and even around the world today. God exhibited great patience. But there is a point beyond which if God continues to show mercy in the sense of not doing anything, it becomes at least in the mind of some a condoning of the evil which is happening. At least it would seem to be that way. Therefore, judgment must come. Now, God's judgment is generally swift and is always sure. 
He usually brings judgment for at least three reasons, which I've listed for you there, and, and certainly you can probably think of others. But first of all, he brings judgment as an act of discipline. It often takes a hard jolt to awaken people to their sin and to their folly and to bring repentance. Sometimes we simply won't listen to the quiet, still, small voice of the Spirit. We need to have the proverbial two-by-four between the eyes before we will wake up. I thought it'd be interesting for us to go back and, and just remind ourselves of how one of the most beloved of God necessitated such a jolt to wake him up. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, the previous chapter in events you know all about David and Bathsheba and the killing of Uriah the Hittite and how David seems to go on and, and ignoring this whole thing as if it didn't happen. And finally, God sends Nathan the prophet. Verse 7, then Nathan said to David, after he tells this story about somebody who has this pet lamb who's just like a child in the family, and this rich neighbor over here has got a whole field full of, of sheep, and when a, somebody comes to visit the rich man, he goes over and takes the pet lamb and slaughters him rather than taking one out of his great field. And David is really incensed by that. He sees the injustice of it all, and Nathan strikes while the iron is hot. And he says to David, you are that man. Thus says the Lord. Now you can just see his finger right in David's face. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. Notice, I, I. <laughs> you didn't do it, David. I did it, God says. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more blessings like these. In other words, if you needed them, I would have given you even more than that. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You have, have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. That's especially a, a low cut because the Ammonites were really hated by the Israelites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. And that, of course, would be his son Absalom a few years later. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. That was a strong blow to David. And David's heart was wrenched by this whole thing. God will perform major surgery if that's what he's got to do to get us on the right track. Notice that verse 13, verse 14. One of the reasons God did what he did was because David had given the enemies of God a cause to blaspheme. 
And that's what we see often today, is it not? Somebody who supposedly is a great minister for Jesus Christ and who goes down the immoral tube of immorality and gives a cause to blaspheme to the nation. I think for that reason, God's hand will be heavy on these individuals as it was on David. For discipline, God wants us to wake up and walk in his way. For example, others seeing God's judgment may turn from their wicked way and repent if they see what God did over here. You know, this scripture is given for an example, we're told, that we might know how to walk with God. And God will give example so that, theoretically, we might change before it's too late. You and I train up a child, hopefully that he will go in the right way so that that child will be able to know the truth and walk in the truth without having to find it out the hard way every time. This, the account in Numbers is really very potent account concerning this. Very idea of example. Korah and others had decided that it wasn't right for Aaron to be the only one to be able to bring incense before the Lord. And so these others uh, fill their little uh, lamps with incense and they want to wave the incense around before the Lord. And this is God's response in verse 31 of number 16. Then it came about as he finished speaking all these words that the ground that was under them split open and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions so that so they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly and all Israel who were around them fled at their outcry for they said the earth may swallow us up fire also came forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense I mean talk about an example you know <coughs> Probably an oil pocket was formed as a result. I don't know. But anyway, um, <laughs> sick, isn't it? Anyway, uh, here's an example. And in the fire, on top of that, the fire of the Lord came out and just incinerated these people who had dared to challenge God's word and God's authority. An example, the other people who stood around and they backed up with great fear. I mean, they saw this ground open up. They saw these people fall in. They saw the ground closed up. They saw the fire. That was an example to them. Hopefully they would walk in obedience without having to go through that kind of experience personally other than having observed it. And then, of course, finally, God brings judgment as an act of justice. Justice is an attribute of the holy, righteous God. We live in a day when there uh, has been a tendency in some circles to forget this part about God and to make him into a syrupy a God over here who is a God of love, and, and this love is some kind of a warm, fuzzy type love, and to forget that he's a God who demands righteousness and holiness. And, and that because he de uh, demands righteousness and holiness, this does not reduce his love. It's actually an expression of his love. Because we're, we're sucked into this syrupy love over here, 
you know, kind of like some of these sing-song songs about falling in love over and over again, you know, type thing, which doesn't talk about what the kind of love of God really is. That's, that's human emotion, not what God is really all about. Justice is premised upon love, and it must ultimately prevail. For God to be true to his own nature and fair to his creation, justice must ultimately prevail. And he cannot allow rebellion to persist forever. Let me read a couple of verses from Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Do not be, be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. God is not mocked for long. The day of retribution will come. Hopefully those who have mocked God will, will have their hearts touched and will be changed. But if not, they will face the ultimate judgment of God because that is an expression of his love. That is an expression of his fairness. It's not vindictiveness. Sometimes people try to portray God as some kind of an inflated ego up there who can't stand anybody going against his, his, the way he thinks without realizing he is perfect. And everything he says and does is perfect. And if he says to do it this way, it's because it's for everybody's good to do it this way, not just his good. Because he is perfectly benevolent. He wants our good above absolutely everything else. He is not out to inflate his ego. He doesn't need to. He's Lord of the universe. It kind of reminds me of the guy, you know, who's sitting there with a, with a Maserati at the stoplight. And he's next to a Volkswagen bug. He's got nothing to prove. By ripping out from that stoplight and doing the first quarter mile at 100 miles per hour. You know, got nothing to prove to that Volkswagen. God has nothing to prove. He's the Almighty. I, you probably have heard the little uh, phrase, God is still on the throne. And, you know, I, I, I accept that and, you know, I understand what people are saying, but the very idea of using the word still in there really bothers me. God is still on the throne because that implies the possibility that he couldn't, that he might not be on the throne sometime. And that's absurd. God is not still on the throne. He is always on the throne, will ever be on the throne, and there's never any other question. God is on the throne. Just throw the word still out. You know. And so, in that perfection, his love demands justice, and that justice is right and good and holy and correct, and it's the best for us all. Well, I guess we'll have to... Uh, stop there and we'll pick up on our outline at that point next week and uh, look and see what it is that God chose to do and how that has impacted us today. <laughs>